and turn to Psalm 72. And just to, to set this up, let me remind you that the Psalms consist of 150 psalms. 150 psalms. Each psalm is a song that is to be accompanied by instruments. So even though they were written as poems, in a sense, they were to be put, they were to be set to music. So there's 150 songs, and these 150 songs are divided into five sections, which we call five books. So this is the breakdown. Section one, or book one of the Psalms, is Psalm 1 through 41. So that's called section one, or book one of the Psalms. Section two of the Psalms contains Psalm 42 through Psalm 72. Now what Psalm are we in? So we're at the end of the second book of the Psalms. The third book of the Psalms are Psalms 73 through 89. That's the third book. We will probably get close to the end of the third book by the end of the summer. The fourth book is Psalm 90 to 106. And then the final book or section of the Psalms is 107 to 150. 150 psalms. Each one of these psalms ends with a doxology. So if you look at the end of Psalm 72, you'll notice a doxology. Verse 18 says, Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who has done wondrous things, and blessed be his glorious name forever. Let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. That's a doxology. The second book of Psalms ends with a doxology. The first book of Psalms ends with a doxology. So if you would turn over to Psalm 41, notice how that ends. Psalm 41, which concludes the first book. Look what it says in the last verse of Psalm 41. It should be Psalm 41 and verse 13. It says, Blessed be the God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. Look at that. Amen and amen. So those both books end with the doxology. Look at the third book. Look at Psalm 89. Now, we're not going to look at all of them, but I want to show you that there's a similarity here. Psalm 89, which concludes the third book. And look down at the last verse. And look what it says. <clears throat> Blessed be the Lord forevermore. Amen and amen. Now, the fourth book ends with a doxology, not the exact same words, but something very similar. And then Psalm 150 ends with a doxology, which says, with everything that has breath, what? Praise the Lord. See, so that is how the book, of uh, how Psalms is laid out. So let's look at Psalm 72. And let me tell you a couple special features about Psalm 72. First of all, Psalm 72 is what we call a royal psalm. That means it is uh, written about or focuses on the reign of a king of Israel. It focuses on the reign of Israel's king. Uh, possibly it was read or sung uh, at his coronation, when he was crowned the king and he was enthroned and he took his throne. 
So it's a royal psalm. The second thing I want you to notice about Psalm 72 is the superscription right at the beginning of the psalm. Notice what it says. A psalm of Solomon. He's the king that this song is about. Okay? It's a song of Solomon. He writes it. There are only two psalms that are ascribed to Solomon. So that makes this very rare. David writes about 73 of the psalms. Asaph, another guy, writes a whole bunch of psalms. The sons of Korah write a whole bunch of psalms. Solomon writes two psalms. So this is going to be about Solomon and his reign as king. Now, this uh, is interesting, but it causes a problem. Because if you look at the end of Psalm 72, the very last verse, this would be Psalm 72 and verse 20, look what it says. The prayers of what? David, the son of Jesse, are in there. Now what is it? Is it David or is it Solomon? So he said, we have a problem here. Uh, some people believe that uh, verse 20 refers to all the second book. In other words, uh, all the things that, that David has written up until this point, they've ended. Uh, but there's another explanation, and it may be that uh, this is a psalm that was written originally by David, or actually, let's put it this way, not a psalm that was written by David, but this is a prayer, or a number of prayers that David had for his son Solomon uh, when he would become king. Because David was going to have a successor. And who was going to be the next king after David? Solomon. He has these prayers on behalf of Solomon, who's going to become king. Now Solomon is taking the throne, and guess what? He reflects back on those prayers. And he writes this thing down. And he's determined that he is going to try to fulfill these prayer requests that his father has for his own reign. He's going to try to meet his father's ex expectations. So this would be perfect for Father's Day, since this is Father's Day. Now we have one other feature here, and it's somewhat of a problem as well. You don't care if I tell you about these kinds of things, do you? I just think, you know, it helps a little bit. The second thing I want you, the third thing I want you to notice, beginning in verse 2, it says, He will judge your people with righteousness. Look at verse 3. He will bring justice. See? Uh, in verse 7, his, In his days righteousness shall uh, flourish. If Solomon is writing this, why would he be speaking in the third person? You know, that's how Bob Dole used to speak. Remember Bob Dole? When he was running for president, he says, Bob Dole doesn't believe that. That's sort of a little strange, you know. Why don't you say, I don't believe that? Uh, <laughs> but if you were reading, now that's, this is a, that's an exact translation from the Hebrew, uh, the Hebrew text of Psalms. Psalms was originally written in Hebrew. But in about 278 B.C., the Psalms were translated into Greek. Did you know that? Do you know all the Old Testament was translated into Greek in 270? And that translation is called the Septuagint. Do you know why it was translated? Because Alexander the Great, who was the head of the Greek Empire, took over the world. 
And he said to his librarian, he wanted to build the greatest library in the world. At that time, he wanted to accumulate 200,000 books. Now remember, every book that was ever written was written in hand. Right? No type, no print. And so he said to his librarian, what would be the greatest library in the world? The guy said, well, you can get 200,000 volumes, you'll have the greatest library in the world. And Solomon said, well, what would be some of the books that we should get? And the guy said, we need the Bible. We need the Jewish Bible. And, so, uh, and uh, Alexander the Great said, well, my people read Greek. They can't read Hebrew. And he said, well, then we have a problem. He said, people wouldn't have access to the book. They couldn't read it. So Alexander the Great said, I want to translate it into Greek. And so the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek. And when it was... The translators realized that this should be in the form of a prayer. This whole psalm should be in the form of a prayer. So instead of verse 2 reading this way, he will judge your people. What it ends up saying is, may he judge your people. And so what we think is that these were David's prayers. And he's talking about his son who's going to inherit the throne, Solomon. And he puts down these prayers, may he uh, you know, judge your people in righteousness, may he bring justice to the poor, and so forth. And Solomon is reflecting on that as he takes the throne, and he doesn't want to disappoint his father. So, just a couple of the features about the psalm. Now let's go down and look at the psalm itself. Let's start at verse 1, and you're going to see that we have an intercession here for the king. And look what it says. In Psalm 72, verse 1, Give the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. Now this is a parallelism. If you've been with us, you know what a parallelism That means line 1 and line 2 basically mean the same thing. So line 1 says, Give your king your judgments, O God, and then line 2 says, And your righteousness to the king's son. If line one and line two mean the same thing, then guess what? The king and the king's son mean what? The same thing. They both refer to Solomon. He's the king and he's the king's son. He's the king, but who was his father? King David. So he's the king's son. All refers to Solomon. Okay, does that make sense? This is Father's Day. You may be a father, but guess what? You're the son of a father. You're a father's son, aren't you? I said, are you your father's son? He said, yes. And I said, are you your father? He said, yes. I said, oh, I thought you were your father's son. Not two different people, same verse. So this is referring to Solomon. And this is a prayer. Now notice what the prayer requests. To God. God, here's my request. Give the king your judgments and your righteousness. It's a request for God to bestow upon Solomon the ability to judge his people in righteousness. The issue here is justice. Every king of Israel, on behalf of God, judged the people of God. Notice that God is to give him this ability. He's to be given this responsibility. This is what we would be called delegated responsibility. When the king speaks, it's the same as if God speaks. When the king is sitting on his throne and he's judging a case. He is God's representative on earth 
And when he speaks for God, he must do it with exactitude. His judgments must be uh, righteous. He must make sure he mets out justice and he doesn't play favorites because God doesn't play favorites. So this is what the request is, that he is to judge the people in righteousness. Now this idea continues in verse 2. Look what it says. May he, or my translation says he will judge, but remember it's a prayer. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Notice that he is to give poor people justice. He is not to play favorites and, you know, decide in the in favor of people who are wealthy or rich. Poor people are to get justice just as well. You know, on our Supreme Court, the first thing I noticed when I went to Washington a few weeks ago is on the top of the Supreme Court are the words equal justice under law. That means when you step into those halls of justice, it doesn't matter whether what your color is, what your ethnic background is, whether you're rich or poor, you're supposed to get equal justice under law. And that is comes straight out of the scriptures. The king was to treat poor people the same as he would treat rich people and not favor or show prejudice in that case. Look at verse 3. The mountains will bring peace to the people. And the little hills. Uh, peace there is the word shalom. Uh, if you do that, if you rule righteously, uh, he says, the mountains, from the high places to the low places, there will be peace. Now, the word peace there is a very nebulous term in the Jewish language, the Hebrew language. Peace can mean wholeness, and in this case it can mean abundance and prosperity. It could mean that from uh, the... the, the uh, the mountaintops would be filled with vegetation. There would be abundance of crops on the mountaintops and down in the valleys. Usually it's the valleys that are plush. But here uh, the writer, or David, as he's praying the prayer for Solomon, says, help my son to judge righteously. And when you do that, the mountains as well as the valleys will just bring forth abundance. Uh, it could mean that. That's what the word shalom can mean. But peace can also mean, you might know what else it can mean? It means peace, the way we think of peace, which is, uh, which simply means, uh, you know, allow peace to reign in Israel. Allow us to defeat our enemies. Don't allow any enemies to overtake us and defeat us. So that's what it means. One of those two things. Notice the verb in there in verse three. You see the verb bring. See, it could mean let the mountains bring forth fruit and abundance. Or it could mean, let the mountains bring forth peace. Now, how does a mountain bring forth peace? In the world, does that mean? How can a mountain bring forth peace? Well, I want to show you something. Look over at Isaiah. Just turn about 50 pages right in your Bible. Isaiah chapter 52. And notice what it says. It's very interesting. You've seen this verse before, but you saw it in the New Testament. Because it's quoted in the New Testament. So this would be Isaiah 52. 
And look at verse 7. Isaiah 52 and verse 7. Look what it says. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings, there's the word brings, who brings good news, who proclaims what? Peace. Who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says, your God reigns. Now, what is Isaiah saying? Here's what's happened. Israel is in a war in this situation. And uh, the king of Israel is leading in a battle in some far country. And the king of Israel and his army defeats the enemy. And immediately the king sends a runner. Hurry back to the capital city of Jerusalem and say, we won, we won, our God reigns. And so the runner comes back and he runs and he gets up onto the mountain and guess what he starts saying? Our God reigns, good news, we won the battle, we have peace in our land, we haven't been defeated. So we don't know whether it means the mountains have produced fruit in abundance or that's what it brings forth or it brings forth a message that Israel has not been defeated by her enemies. Now, you see how you could read over a verse like that and have no idea what it means without any background? It's amazing, isn't it? So, look back at uh, Psalm 72. So, what we have is either abundance or peace. And I guess what? It may mean both. And you'll see that as we go through the psalm. It may be an allusion to both. Okay? Look what else it says at the end of verse 3. By righteousness, verse 4, may he bring justice to the poor of the people. He will save the children of the needy. He will break in pieces the oppressor. So notice, it's the same thing. He's going to bring justice to the poor people. That's line number one. He will save the children of the needy. That's line number two. They mean exactly the same thing. He will break in pieces the oppressor. Uh, the oppressor are the people who oppress poor people. They are other nations that would come in and oppress the people of God. And the king, he, look what he does. He brings justice to the poor people. He saves the children of the needy. And he breaks, he breaks in pieces the oppressor. So that is sort of a, a statement about, you know, defeating the enemies. And look what it says. And they, that would be the oppressors. See, when the king beats them, look what happens. They, the oppressors, will fear who? You, with a capital U. Why? You see that? They will fear God. So if the king basically rules correctly in righteousness, and he mets out judgment, justice to all people, including the poor, God will stand on his side and there will be abundance in the land, and the enemies and the oppressors will be defeated, and they will fear God. If the king, on the other hand, doesn't rule in righteousness, and he doesn't met out justice to the poor people, when he goes to war, what's going to happen? They're going to end up getting defeated, and guess what? No one will fear God. They will believe their gods defeated Yahweh, the God of Israel. You see, so that is the, the sort of the, the story of this prayer. So you just need to understand that. So the result is they will fear you. And look at this. That's God. 
as long as the sun and moon endure. So remember, it's a prayer. So it should read like this in verse 5. May they fear you as long as the sun and moon endure. That's the desire. Doesn't mean the people will do it, but that's the desire of the prayer. Now look at verse 6. And he, now this is again the king, shall come down like rain upon the grass before mowing. That's line number one. Like showers that water the earth. Now what's it talking about? The king will come down like rain. First of all, you notice the word like in there? What is that? What kind of part of speech is that? That's a simile. Okay, so it's making it a comparison here between the speech, between uh, the king and, and rain, the king and the water that waters the earth. Okay, he, the king, shall come down like rain upon the grass before mowing, like showers that water the earth. Who does he come down on? The king. Does he come down on the oppressors, the enemies? Does he defeat his enemies? Does he overwhelm them? Or is it describing the king coming down upon the people and pouring out showers of blessings upon his people? See, it's going to mean either one. And this is why it's very difficult to determine. Probably means both. He will reign over them. He'll be like rain that comes down on the foreign troops, and he will rain blessings down upon his people. Verse 7. In his days, the righteousness shall flourish, and the abundance of peace, until the moon is no more. This is a prayer for lengthy rule. Notice, his days, the king's days, the days of righteousness shall flourish, meaning under the king, and abundance of peace, that shall flourish. How long? For a long time, until the moon is no more. Now, it doesn't literally mean till the moon is no more. That's a figure of speech. It just means, guess what? May the king and his righteous reign last a long time. Okay? Not a short time. That's just simply what it means here. Okay? So that's verse 7. Now look at verse 8. He shall, or may he have, he shall have, or may he have, dominion, this is the king, from sea to sea, from sea to sea, from the river, probably the river Euphrates, to the ends of the earth. So, uh, this means that the king, this is the prayer, may the king have universal reign. Uh, and here it gives the diameters of the reign. And one of the diameters, we don't know what the seas from sea to sea is, we're not sure what that is, but the river is probably the Euphrates River. And my translation has river in capital, and it's for that particular purpose, so you know it's the Euphrates River. Uh, but probably what it's describing is, may the king actually reign over the entire land that God promised Abraham. The promised land. You know that the kings, most kings didn't reign over the entire promised land. There were always pockets here and there that they couldn't conquer. Solomon, however, reigned over the vastest kingdom of, above even David's reign and uh, King Saul's reign. So he was, had more territory than the, three other, than the other monarchs among the three. Now here are the specifics of that reign. Watch this. May he reign over those 
who dwell in the wilderness. See that? Those who dwell in the wilderness will bow before him. These are the desert tribes. Today we call these the Arabs. In Solomon's days, these were marauding uh, Arab tribes uh, that would attack at night and they couldn't be conquered. But here the prayer is, may he rule over the Arab desert tribes. May they bow down to him, which speaks of submission. So that would be the desert Arab tribes. And look at the end of verse 9. And may his enemies lick the dust. That is a picture of the enemy being defeated. Another one bites the dust. What does that mean? It means they lost. It might mean they had to bow down, like the first sentence says, they bow down and they have to kiss the king's feet in an act of humiliation, an act of submission. So what happens is that Solomon is, is ruling the vast territory, a very large territory, and all of his enemies are conquered and they are humbled and they submit to him. Look at the examples that are given in verse 10. The kings of Tarshish, and the owls, plural, will bring presents or tributes. So uh, some translators, uh, some commentators think that Tarshish represents Spain. Uh, probably more than Spain. It's Tarshish and the owls. These would be the merchant countries uh, on the west side of the Mediterranean Sea. So if you were looking at the Mediterranean Sea, on the west side of the Mediterranean Sea, there were these merchant countries uh, that... Uh, shipped their uh, trade by sea. And they were world traders. And he says the kings of those countries will bring presents to King Solomon. And then look at the end of verse 10. The kings of Sheba and Seba will offer gifts. That's the region of Saudi Arabia today. So that's on the eastern side of the Mediterranean Sea. So on both sides of the Mediterranean, Solomon is conquered, and guess what the kings of those countries that he's conquered are doing? They're bringing him gifts see, from Saudi Arabia. And Sheba, you've heard of the Queen of Sheba. Remember her? What did the Queen of Sheba do? Anybody know? They came, she came to Solomon. You know why she came to Solomon? Let me show you what it says. I'll show you one, one little section in First Kings. It's very interesting because she would be representing her husband, the king. And uh, here's an example in First Kings chapter 10. Look what it says. We'll just look at a verse or two because their eyes sort of fall down the page. First Kings chapter 10 and verse 1. And it says, Now, when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, Yahweh, she came to test him with hard questions. So she came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue, with camels that bore spices, very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she spoke with him about all that was in her heart. And so Solomon answered all of her questions, 
There was nothing so difficult for the king that he could not explain it to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food on his table, that's the abundance, the seating of his servants, the service of his waiters. And she goes on and says that uh, the half has not been told in verse 7. She said, however, I didn't believe that. When I heard all the reports, I didn't believe it until I came and I saw it with my own eyes. And indeed, half was not told to me. Your wisdom and your prosperity exceed the fame of which I heard. And then it talks about others who came and bring, brought him gifts. Look at verse 14. The weight of the gold that came to Solomon yearly was 666 talents of gold. Besides that, the traveling merchants, that would be from Tarshish, for example, from the income of the traders, from the kings of Arabia, and from the governments of the country. And you see, it just goes on and tells all the wealth and all the gifts that are being brought to Solomon. That's what this uh, Psalm 72 is talking about. So if you look back there, it says the kings of Tarshish and of the Arabian Peninsula and all these areas. Sheba, you see that in verse 15, the gold of Sheba. In fact, I may have skipped that to that verse. I don't know. So here's what it says. Uh, they would bring the kings of Tarshish, verse uh, 10, the kings of Tarshish and the owls will bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba will offer gifts. Yes, verse 11 says, All the kings shall fall down before him. All the nations shall worship him. Or may all the nations worship him. May all the kings fall down before him. And they're bringing their gifts. Now, I don't know if you've been to the Bush Library, Presidential Library at SMU, but we went a couple months ago, and one of the things that fascinated me a lot of things that fascinated me, but one of them was just the displays of the gifts that the heads of state brought to President Bush. Anybody see those gifts? It was unbelievable things. I just stood there and read those things. I said, and looked at those objects. I mean, there was crystal, there was gold, there was platinum, there was diamonds, there were jewels. You just couldn't believe the craftsmanship and all these things that were brought to honor President Bush, just to show him respect. That's what you have happening here. And it's just piling up and piling up, and we get statements and kings that he's the richest man in the world because of this. So that's what's happening. Yes, all the kings fall down; they worship him. All the all the nations serve him. And here's the reason why they do it in verse 12. Here's the explanation: for he will deliver the needy when he cries, the poor also. And him who has no help. You know why he has all these people submitting to him? You know why he has all the people showering him with gifts? Why does he do it? Because when the poor cry out, what does he do? What's it say there? It says, he delivers the needy when they cry. And the poor also, when he has no, has no helper. He takes care of the poor people. God blesses him because of that. The more he gives away, the more he receives. Those who have no helper, that's important right there. Those that have no helper. You know the saying, God helps those who, that's the biggest lie in the world. These people have no helper. They can't help themselves. God helps them 
through King Solomon when they can't help themselves. And when that happens, God takes care of the nation of Israel, and God takes care of the king. It's very interesting, isn't it? So, true or false? God helps those who help themselves. The answer really is from the scripture, it's false. He helps the helpless. So, Israel was in bondage to Egypt, and they were oppressed. They cried out, and God sent them a deliverer. And the Exodus, he sent Moses. People in Israel need help. God ministers to them through the king, his earthly representative. Jesus comes on the scene, and there are those who can't help themselves. Those who can't even stand up. One time he goes to this pool, and there's this man who's crippled. And he says, do you want to be healed? And the guy says, I have no one to help me. Get in the water. I have no helper. And what does Jesus do? He heals the helpless. He helps the helpless. Now look, we're the church of Jesus Christ. Who do you think God has called to help the helpless now? Not, not the governments of the world. They don't represent God. You think Putin represents God? It's presidents of the United States, prime ministers of England, you know, all around. They're not God's representatives, God's spokesmen on the earth. It's the church. We're the ones who are God's hands extended to help the poor. And when we help the poor, then God helps us. He gives peace in the church. There's no dissension. There's abundance in the church. It's really important. Verse 13 says, He will spare the poor and the needy. He will save the souls of the needy, which simply means their lives. He will redeem their life from, the, from oppression and violence. The king does that. May he, this would be a prayer, may he redeem the life from oppression and violence. And precious shall be their blood in his sight. He is their protector. He is their provider. Uh, he is the one who is God's hands extended. And he protects them from violence, the poor people, the helpless. He protects from violence and he protects from the oppressor. That's why Israel was not allowed to lend money to its citizens with interest. God saw that as oppression. He says, no, that's not how you do it. That's how the other nations do it. And when the king delivered the people from the oppressors, then Israel was blessed. There are people now just trying to always oppress the poor people. You don't realize it because you don't live around the poor people. But, you know, there are, there are loan sharks. There are people who try to get them, poor people in the mortgages, and buy insurance pro uh, products and buy, you know, cars that they can't afford, knowing that they're going to get them back. There are people who will sell a poor person a car, knowing they're going to get it back. A poor person will have some government check. Turn it right over to the used car company. Guy knows he's going to get it back in a month. That's oppression. oppression. And uh, the king had to be the defender and the protector and the provider for the poor people. Okay, what else does it say he needed to do? Look at verse uh, 15. This is very interesting. This is the result of his righteous rule. Look what it says. He shall live, or may he live, 
thee. May he live. And the gold of Sheba will be given to him. May he live. That's the prayer. You've heard the saying, long live the king. That's where it comes from, right here. This is what it means. Long live the king. May the king live. But this isn't being said glibly. It's not like you know, the queen walks into the room and everyone says, long live the queen. The queen Elizabeth. They don't care whether she lives or not. But this is a prayer. And here's the prayer. In light of the fact that this guy's ruling in righteousness, may the king live long. Because <laughs> as long as he's doing what he's supposed to be doing, there's peace and abundance in Israel. May the king live long. And the gold of Sheba will be given to him. Prayer will be made for him continually. Notice how the people are praying for their king continually. And daily he shall be praised. There's a popularity among this king because of what he does. Uh, we know one day that, uh, in fact, if I would have read the rest of chapter 10 of 1 Kings, you would have seen that Solomon falls <laughs> in about three paragraphs later. Because he, he starts off his reign royally. And he does a tremendous job. A job even better than David. But then he goes south. And it doesn't end up the way David wanted it to end up. Look at verse 16. But that's what they're praying for. That's why they're praising. He's very popular. May there be abundance of grain on the earth. And this probably means the land that he rules. On the top of the mountains. This is why it's possible that it's talking about vegetation on the mountains. Abundance on the mountains. Its fruit, may it wave like Lebanon. May it wave like Lebanon. Uh, you've heard of the tall cedars of Lebanon. Tall trees that wave in the wind. It speaks of abundance. and says, may the abundance in the vegetation in Israel be like the fruit as it waves in Lebanon. And then look at the end of verse 16. And those in the city shall flourish like the grass of the earth. May they flourish like the grass of the earth. So you have flourishing on mountaintops and flourishing in the cities. You have flourishing throughout the entire nation, not only in the capital city there. Verse 17 says, And may his name endure forever. May his name endure forever. And uh, we still know Solomon's name, don't we? We still speak. We talked about Solomon this morning. His name has endured forever. I mean, it's a long time because of all the good that he's, he has done. May his name endure forever. His name shall continue as long as the sun, and men shall be blessed in him. But like I mentioned, Solomon felt, and all this prayer was not actualized. Solomon didn't live up to the expectation of his father. But the scripture says, one greater than Solomon is here, Jesus Christ the righteous. And uh, Jesus Christ, in a sense, is uh, the fulfillment of David's prayer. David thought he was praying for his son Solomon. But God intended this prayer to be fulfilled through Jesus, the son of David. You know, that's what Jesus is called, isn't it? Son of David. Solomon was the son of David, but guess what? Jesus is identified with the son of David. And you know, by the 2nd century B.C., 
Jewish rabbis. Israel was in a mess. And Jewish rabbis began to read this psalm, this royal psalm. And they began to interpret it what we call messianically. They began to interpret it and say, we know that Solomon didn't fulfill all this. God is going to, must be sending someone else, a Messiah, who will fulfill this. And so they were looking for a future perfect king that would fulfill all the promises that are in this psalm. It goes on to say at the end of verse 17, And men shall be blessed in him, and all the nations shall call him blessed. Well, that happened for a short time with Solomon, but one day it'll happen when Messiah comes. Now we come to the doxology. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who has done wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever, and let the whole earth be filled with his glory. You know, back in the 70s, there was a movement of scripture songs. A lot of the scripture songs came out of Australia, where musicians would just take portions of scriptures, and they would set it to music. And this was one of the famous scripture songs right here that was set to music during the Jesus Movement days in the early 70s. And it went like this in verse 18. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel. For he has done such wondrous things. He has done such wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. Anybody ever hear that song? Now that's not worth clapping for, believe me. That's, that's worth crying for, right there. But that was a very famous song. Now Lynn remembers that song. Remember that? Yeah. Uh, once in a while, I just sing that to the grandkids, you know. So here is a song. This is the doxology that ends the uh, Psalm 72. And then we have that double set of amens. Amen and amen. A double, so be it. It's put in, written down twice for emphasis. Because David, when he prays for Solomon, this is his heartfelt desire. And at the end, he says, doesn't just say amen. He says, amen and amen for emphasis. And then it says, the prayers of David. Each one of these little verses here is a prayer of David, the son of Jesse now in well I told you the rabbis started to uh, interpret Psalm 72 messianically by the first century AD the church also interpreted Psalm 72 messianically this royal psalm and they applied it to Jesus see the rabbis in second century BC didn't know who Jesus was but by the first century the church applied this royal psalm to Jesus and uh, because he is God's king. At his birth, he was announced God's king. At his baptism, he was anointed God's king. And then with his resurrection and ascension, he was inaugurated as God's king. And he sits at God's right hand right now, and he reigns over heaven and earth, whether people realize it or not. He's reigning. It's called the already not yet reign of Christ. He's reigning already, but not everyone yet has submitted to him. But one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus 
is the king of the universe. A one greater than Solomon is here. And Revelation says, and when that happens, the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of God's Son and His Christ. Amen. He shall reign forever and ever. That's the end of book two of Psalms. Next week we start book three, Psalm 73. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for, uh, we see what prayer did. Even if it were just a portion of Solomon's uh, life, it, this prayer was answered by you until he made wrong choices and decided to abandon living up to the expectations of his father. Oh Lord, how easy it is to, to quit uh, when we've got the victory. How easy it is to slide. Uh, Lord, help us not to uh, fail the expectations that you have for us. Help us to live up to your expectations. We're your children. You want what's best for us. And we think of Jesus, your son, who lived up to every one of your expectations. Never failed you. Was a protector and a provider for the poor. Always judging righteously. Never showing partiality. Lord, may he be our example. May we be true sons of God. True men and women of God. In Christ's name.